Hello, welcome to the first episode of our new podcast, Homing In. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House and Inigo, and author of the book, A Modern Way to Live. I've spent my career trying to understand the importance of home in people's lives, and that's really what this podcast is all about. In each episode, I ask the guests to discuss their life story through the lens of the places they've lived in. So we start off by chatting about their childhood home, and then we move on to their current living space. And finally, we discuss an aspirational home of the future where they imagine themselves seeing out their days. The podcast has evolved very naturally from our previous iteration, the Modern House podcast, which we've been recording for three years or so now. For this new version, we didn't want to get too bogged down in the minutiae of design and architecture and instead focus on the personal and psychological aspects of home. Coming up, we've got a legendary photographer, some entrepreneurs, magazine editors, fashion designers, curators, and so on. So please do follow the show and you'll be alerted as soon as they come out. Right, on to today. I walk up the stairs every single night and I still, probably 40 years later, slightly gasp that it's our house. We've come to Chelsea to meet the legendary chef Ruth Rogers at her incredible house. It really is one of the great living spaces in London and I'm very, very pleased to come back again. Ruthie talks about growing up in the Borscht Belt near New York. There's a chance encounter with Bob Dylan in Woodstock when she was young uh, and the day that she met her husband Richard Rogers in the late 1960s. Having personally co-founded a business in an industry I knew absolutely nothing about, I can certainly relate to Ruthie's inspiring story of starting the River Cafe with no restaurant experience and basically making things up as she went along. She tells me about how the restaurant has become a home from home for her and why it's been a breeding ground for some of the world's most celebrated chefs. She talks about the influences behind her iconic home from the Maison de Verre in Paris to the Italian piazzas of Pienza and Montepulciano and how it's provided her with great comfort following Richard's death. We are in central London, so there's the odd bit of background noise when a lorry or a street cleaner goes past, but hopefully the intimacy of recording in Ruthie's home more than makes up for it. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I'm very happy to meet you and honoured. Thank you, Ruthie, likewise. It's so nice. To take you right back to the beginning. Mm. Where? Do, tell us about your, your house that you grew up in. I was born 100 miles north of New York City, in a town called Monticello, which was, uh, you know, what they call that area was the Borscht Belt because it was an area of hotels that mostly first-generation Jewish immigrants, um, probably my grandparents and their friends, um, would leave New York and come to. My father was a doctor. My mother was a librarian. We lived in this very small town. I think probably when my father came back from the war, he went there because he had a friend there and thought he would stay a short time and ended up staying most of his life. But going back to the house, I know that our house was it was pretty dire because we lived on a main road opposite a gas station. And on the right, there was another gas station coming down a hill. And then there was a farm which belonged to a prison. 
And so we had a, a, a state penitentiary there. I think it was for very serious offenders, but it was a view again. We had two, a garage and a prison in the back. Of <laughs> so it's not exactly the most aesthetic place to grow up. Except the front of the house was on a little hill. It kind of nestled into a hill. So the, you climbed the stairs and then you went into the back and there was just a kind of mountainside of, of wild woods that we had. So we always played in the woods. Um, my father was, I grew up, grew up on the Lower East Side of New York, and I think always wanted to be either a, a professor of literature or an art dealer, because he was really, really interested in contemporary art. Did so, you grow up with art around you then? Yeah, I did. So he would go to New York yeah. and come back with a, you know, with a very limited budget, you know, um, piece of sculpture that he would put in the living room or he would buy a painting by an artist that he liked. And so we had, you know, not a lot of art, but it certainly was an important part of my life. And tell us about the house. How, what are your memories of it? Well, I probably have, because I left there when I was 10, I probably have a romanticized yeah. vision of the house. I think I look at that house as... Um, being quite cozy. I had my own bedroom at the top of the stairs. My father, I think in the early years, had a doctor's office in the house. And then there was, I remember there was a dining room and behind the dining room, there was a kitchen. It wasn't an open kitchen, but it wasn't one of those faraway kitchens that you sometimes see in houses. And then there was a living room extension they had added on when they bought the house, which had a big, big window and um, a fireplace. I mean, it was quite a simple house. And I think my parents built themselves a bedroom uh, later. I think there's probably something that they added to all the time. And did you have siblings? I, yeah, I have an older brother and older sister. One is six years older. My sister Susan Elias is a painter. And my brother Michael Elias, who is a writer, went to, uh, to California, has written various great screenplays, The Jerk and other movies. Oh, yeah, The Jerk. Uh, yeah, the Jerk yeah, yeah, he's written lots of movies. And so he lives there. So they were six and eight years older. So by the time I was 10, they were going off to college. And how would you, if you look back on yourself, on, mm. on, on young Ruthie, how would, how would you describe yourself? What were you like? I think I was quite attached to home. I've yeah. always, I've, still, I always love coming home. I think I've always liked home. So I think that... It's kind of ironic that I left home for Europe when I was 19 and I've been here ever since. So I was a kid that loved travel. Yeah. And what, how did you get on at school? Um, I think I was good. You know, I think I was okay. I don't think I was top, top, top student because I was probably easily distracted and um, liked a lot of the other parts of schoolwork. I went for the first 10 years to a very tiny little public school. And, you know, state school. And then when my parents moved to Woodstock, there was a concept of a central school. So we all were bused from different towns. I think my bus ride was almost 45 minutes. I was coming in from the east of the state. There'd be kids coming in from the west. So I could have friends who were lived two hours away from me, you know, because we were all being bused. It was a big, huge public high school. And then I went to school in Colorado. So that changed everything. And you met Bob Dylan, didn't you, famously? I did. Woodstock started off, and that's why my father was so happy to move there when I was 12. He got a job at a hospital near Woodstock, and they were thrilled because it was a small town in upstate New York, but was very well known for being an artist colony. You know, So there was the Art Students League, 
There were studios, there were, you know, there were places where artists could paint, teach, live. And so it became a place where there were quite a lot of artists there, notably Arnold Blanche, notably Milton Avery, Doris Lee, um, and Philip Guston, which was a big effect on our life. And so it was very much an artist's place until in about 65, maybe, uh, Albert Grossman bought a house there. And Albert Grossman was the producer, music producer of Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and the band. I think Peter Yarrow of Peter Paul Mary had already lived in Woodstock. And we all knew that Bob Dylan was there. And one day my friend Libby Cherist and I went to do our homework in the Bear Cafe. And um, the waiter came up with a note saying, um, Bob Dylan, uh, no, in his own family, he said, would you like to come and watch me and the band rehearse? And, you know, we had an exam the next day or something. (laughs) So we just wrote back a little note saying no, and then gave it away. So people often ask me if I have regrets, you know, I'm sure they mean the big ones, like should I have studied something other than what I did, or should I have married a different person or had more children or less children? That's probably a regret that I didn't go listen to Bob Dylan. So you moved to London when you were 19? Yeah, just for a short time. The idea was that I had finished my freshman year at a school called Beddington. Usually it's junior year abroad, but I would send to let me take the fall term off. And so I came to London to stay with friends of my parents and lived in North London. And it was a very heady time, for, you know, politically. So I was very happy. In 1969, you met an architect called Richard. Tell us about that. How did you meet and what was that like? Well, a friend of my father's, probably in the 50s, came to London, as so many writers did. And um, when I came to, to London to study, Howard Koch gave me a list of 10 people to call, and I never did. And then one night I thought, well, I'm going to call these people. And I went to dinner there, and um, another architect called Georgie Walton was there, and she invited me to dinner at her house and Richard was there. And so that's when I met Richard Rogers. So that was, I think it was probably the, maybe the spring of 68, you know, mm. late 67 and early 68. You ended up in Paris as well, didn't you? Because Richard won the competition to design the Pompidou Centre, which is pretty phenomenal because he was quite inexperienced at that point. Presumably. Yeah. What it was, was that like? like winning the lottery. So yeah. You know, we knew, that time I was working at Penguin Books, I did go to study graphic design at London College of Printing. And then when I finished, I started working in the art department of Penguin Books with David Pelham. And Richard was working, at that time, he started with Renzo Piano, who he had just met, and Sue Rogers, and they were working on, you know, various factories and houses and schools in, in Britain and Italy. I think Arab, the engineers, approached them to do this competition for which they paid them, you know, a thousand pounds or something. <laughs> and um, Richard wrote a memo for all the reasons he didn't want to do it. You know, they would never win, they would have to spend time, they got very little money. There was an open competition, so there were no names. There were millions, you know, and, and luckily, he was outvoted by John Young and Sue Rogers and Renzo. So they did the competition. And I remember them working on it. I remember going to visit the site. I remember the feeling that, well, we'll just do this and we'll learn from this experience. And then, you know, I was sitting at my desk at Penguin and I think I think Renzo called me and said, sit, you know, sit in your chair. And then 
wanted to know where Richard was. And Richard was teaching, I think, in Brighton that day. And so there was a flurry of activity trying to get hold of him to announce that actually they won. And uh, after that, again, there was a feeling of, you know, literally the winning lottery. How do you win 681 entries? Their scheme was, was radical. You know, it had um, film on the outside, it had an open piazza, it had always had the concept of not being um, a center of culture, but a center for people. Mm. And so, you know, that changed everything because I kept my job at Penguin and Richard commuted the first year and a half because we never thought it would end. And the brilliance of Philip Johnson and the jury for us was that they didn't give a second prize because I think they right. might, they'll open this envelope. One, it won't be French. Two, it might be somebody young. Three, it could be somebody inexperienced. And they'll give it to the second prize, you know, make a second prize and congratulate the winner and then give it to the second prize. So there was only one prize. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. Courage. The courage of the French also. You yeah. have to say, have an international jury and then say, we'll go for this. Tell me about you, though, in Paris. Did you start cooking at that point? Yeah, I was in Paris, and as I'd done graphic design, they gave me some jobs to do, which was coloring in the, you know, the pipes of the building and, to, you know, helping with exhibitions and, you know, and it was just, it was just such an extraordinary experience for an American person at that, at that point, I was probably 21, you know, living in Paris, having an apartment. And also there was that traditional thing of uh, in Italy where you always go home for lunch. So Richard and Renzo would work all day morning and then we'd all go home for lunch and we became passionate about eating in in restaurants and it was a time of nouvelle cuisine it was mm -hmm. we lived over a market and we'd go down on a saturday morning and smell the chickens had just been roasted and the fruit that had left you know and because it was out of season and the new fruit that came in because it was in season so it was a very heady experience living in, um, in paris so but you went down the italian route in the end so tell us about River Cafe and the genesis of that. Well, when we came back to London, Richard bought Thames Wharf Studios with his partners, Marco Goldschmidt and John Young. And they had this, you know, beautiful site on the river. They made a green space and they had, you know, other people working there in the fields of design and art. And so they wanted a place to eat. All sorts of applications came in for doing a restaurant there. And I remember I was skiing with Richard and I said, you know, the only thing worse than not doing a restaurant would be damn a bad one. These are not good ones. Maybe I'll do it. And I'd always been a home cook cooking it, as you say. And I called Rose Gray and said, come and meet me. And we looked at this tiny, 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 the size of this room. And so I think it was very, started very domestic scale. Um, we both cooked mostly domestically. The Italian was really to do with Richard's mother. Um, the woman was born in Trieste in Northern Italy and then moved to Florence when she met Richard's father and lived in Florence. And Richard, in fact, was born in Florence. And she was, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine a young woman, probably, again, in her late 20s, early 30s, coming to London, you know, during the war and coming here and rationing and food shortages. And she used to say her father used to send her candied fruits from Florence. You know? <laughs> and... Um, and then apparently she also, she's a very, very aesthetic woman. She's apparently put Richard in his pram and looked for a view in London. That was always okay. a really touching story that she looked for a view because, of course, Florence is on a hill. But, um, and so she was, a, you know, she had to learn to cook. Like mm. so many people, if you don't have somebody to cook for you, you can't afford to eat out, um, you learn to cook. And so she was 
a huge influence on all of us. Um, she already had been on me. Wendy Foster, who I mentioned, was married to Norman, learned to cook from Dada as a friend of Rich's. Georgie Walton learned to cook. Uh, you know, Sue Rogers learned to cook. We all learned to cook Italian food from Dada. Okay, interesting. Um, I mean, as someone who started my own thing in my 20s and not really knowing what I was doing, mm-hmm. um, what was that like for you? Well, I think two things. I think that Rose did have experience. Yeah. Had some. I had none. I'd worked as a waiter at a restaurant when I was 17 in the summer. The real key to the success of what we did was that we were so small and so limited. And I believe restrictions kind of help you create rather than hinder it. We had the restriction of only being open at lunchtime Mm. and then even only being open at lunchtime to the people who worked in those warehouses. They wouldn't let us open to the public. We really were able to grow with the restaurant. So Mm. the, you know, the first six months we were open only at lunchtime and then we were allowed to be open on Saturdays. Mm. Then we were open to public. Then we were open on Sundays. Then we were open on night times, you know. So this all became okay. very, very gradual. Why were you allowed to open to the public? What changed? We just went in for planning. Mm. You know, when they first were, there was like, no, 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 no. Mm. You have to remember this is Britain in the 80s and Hammersmith. I mean, they had Duckham's warehouses there pumping you know, oil, horrible smells, but in mm. a way, the idea of an Italian restaurant coming mm. in was more frightening. And mm. I remember somebody, when we went for planning, the planning officer said, don't say that it's Italian. Don't say people come from Los Angeles. Don't say <laughs> you've been reviewed. Say that you can get there by bus. Say that you'll close early. Yeah. Say that it was just a different time than now. Yeah. London is, you know, everywhere there's a restaurant. You yeah. Know? But what's very striking is that you have to make the pilgrimage to go there because it is a residential area, kind of a bit on its own island. Well, we once had a woman who had eaten a meal at the River Cafe. She wanted a taxi, you know. We said, we'll call you a taxi. Where are you going? And she said, London. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She really thought she was in another, you know, place. And I think over the years, it has become much more accessible. I know you had to drive and did it. But there is, that whole area has become slightly more gentrified and Hammersmith has got mm. has Disney there, so it's a more there used to be HarperCollins there. So mm. but we don't just get local people at all. Some people might come out once a month, once a year, once a you know, week. Other people come, we have people come that we just know are gonna come every Thursday night and every Sunday night. Mm. So mm. I like to walk to a restaurant. You know, if I'm home, people ask me where do you like to eat? I usually try to find someplace that I actually walk to from from yeah. my home. But um you know, it's it's nice that people venture out. And yeah, say out. yeah, I'll go a long way for good see. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I just want to ask you briefly about the design of the the space. You talked about how you wanted people to be able to see all the way through the space. Yes. With an open kitchen at yes. the back. What? Why did you want it to be like that? I think we, when we first started, it, Rose and I both had open kitchens in our houses, so that mm. we worked on. The idea that if you had an open kitchen and you were cooking, then it didn't become lonely or mystified that people who came in could help you and then sit down. The kids who were doing their homework could feel a carrot and then they go back to their homework. That everybody helped, that it was, a, you know, it was visible. Mm. And so we wanted a visible kitchen. And the very early first one was really tiny. You actually telephoned for making reservations was in the kitchen. You walked in the door and you were in almost in the kitchen. That was in the very, very beginning. Everything we did then became more visible. We had a bar that we had. We didn't have, we did, the grill was open and doing the cold sessions on the bar. But then we had a wall, the wood oven went into, and then there was a kitchen behind. And then we had a fire in 2008. 
and we tore every wall down. And so now the theatricality of the restaurant is, and also people like to see what they're eating. You know, you have to be clean and you can't shout, you can't get annoyed, you can, but you know, I feel peril. <laughs> and also we don't. And I think it's good, you know, that we have doors going out to the river. So, and it can be pressurized. And mm. if you do feel whatever, you can go and breathe and then yeah. come back. And I think that visibility of, of the space means that it's democratic, you know, it's, you can see the array of tables that you might want, you know, even though you've been given one, you can say, well, actually, I'd rather sit over there and not have to think there's some special room in the back. Having said that, I like going to a restaurant where I can't see the kitchen too. Sometimes you want to just dress up and be quiet and sit in a place mm-hmm. and just, you know, just have a kind of formality and a spacing behind the tables. There's no one right way. Yeah. This is the right way for us. Yeah. It's kind of free of hierarchy is what you're saying in a way. We try, yeah. yeah. I've had people come in and say, you know, where's the best table in the house? And I go, well, you know, my husband likes to sit on that table by the wood oven and Lucy and Freud like to sit as close as he could to the to the door to leave. And somebody else wants to sit in the middle and somebody else considers privacy being by the window. Mm. You know, so that that's nice being able to say that. that is, you know. So you and you've got a kind of bright blue carpet, you've got yeah. the, the wood oven's painted it's kind pink. of shocking pink. Yeah. There's track lighting. It's very it feels very sort of of, of its era yeah. and yet timeless. Oh, thank you. It's interesting because you saw the glass panes yeah. above the board, uh, wall that hide kind of very industrial windows, nothing very beautiful. And a lot of the electrics, they, they reflect very, very beautifully mm. the food that's on the counter and kind of creates a glass wall. And one of them fell down in the summer, really terrifying. Oh. Um, and luckily nobody was hurt. And I was assured that wouldn't happen again, but it was so frightening that we took them all down, okay. you know. And it was amazing how many people liked the look, especially the young kids who worked with it, say, oh, but it looks kind of industrial. And look, it's really cool. You can see all those wires and the windows. And it's so ugly. <laughs> so I sort of sit there and give them a little lecture on architecture, you know, and say, <laughs> yeah. well, now, you know, if you have a quiet space here and you have the reflection, then you won't see that. You know, I wanted to say that it is beautiful, but why don't you, maybe there are lots of them in, you know, Hackney or Vancouver yeah. or something. Yeah. And uh, then we put them back up. Finally, they, they were made. And then all, everybody, you know, you just see the reason. I mean, there's room for everyone. And, mm. you know, this, and I love going to an industrial loft or wherever it is and seeing mm. the mechanics. But it does have that quietness, I think, mm. of having that glass wall, mm. which focuses you to the wood oven. You had to to evolve and move on after Rose passed away. Mm. What what was that like for you personally? I mean, did you, was there ever any question that you wouldn't carry on? We were, you know, there's this shocking death, the car crash death, and there's a death that you're slightly eased into it. And so we had a lot of quite, you know, not a lot of time, but, you know, time to really think what would happen if Rose wasn't there. And it was unimaginable. And even talking to her, not about her own death, but about the restaurant, was that the greatest tribute to Rose would be to carry on. And I don't say that in that military British way, you know, we must carry on. But there was, we taught 25 years to create the River Cafe and then to close it. And we didn't, you know, it would be a different restaurant, perhaps. I don't, you know, I often think, what would Rose have done? I often say that. What would Rose do? What would she have done? What would she have said? Um, How would she have approached this problem? 
And so that is great, you know, because mm. I'm thinking about her. I'm thinking, yeah. we're all talking about her. And the other day we did a newsletter for the Orange Marmalade and put a photograph of her. You know, people always tell me that the restaurant world was so competitive and, mm. and uh, so kind of tough. And there were all these men chefs and they'd be, you know, these two women, how dare they open a restaurant and they had no experience and all that. And I have to say that in my 35 years, I have really only experienced support and kindness from other chefs, other restaurateurs. And after Rose died, I, you know, I often tell the story that somehow I'd be there. It was really tough. It was yeah. terrifyingly tough and sad and emotional. And I'd be cooking and Jeremy King would be suddenly there. I thought, what's he doing, you know, in Hammersmith? And he said, oh, he just happened to be around the corner. And Nick Jones would call me up. Giorgio Locatelli would say, Ruthie, I have a pasta guy here from Turin and you should really see what he's doing and I'm going to send him over. And I, I just feel now looking back, I don't know whether they're all talking to each other and saying we better help Ruthie, but mm. they did. That's lovely, isn't it? Mm. I hope that I would do that for somebody else. Well, speaking of chefs, why has that restaurant been such a breeding ground for so many other talents from Jamie Oliver to yeah. you, Whitting School and everyone else? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that... Um, because we don't have that traditional hierarchy of um, sous chef. I, mean, I don't even know the terms. And it's, uh, <laughs> there's all these, these words that you can have. River Cafe is a family restaurant. It's a cozy restaurant, but it's also very rigorous. So mm. you have to teach people to be able to perform, to cook for people who are coming and spending quite a lot of money. You know, mm. so. I think we did spend a lot of time teaching. I think that um, because when you come to work, you don't know whether you're going to make a risotto or you're going to make a sauce. So we don't do that thing of people and of being on just one section. Okay. And so I think that gives you a sort of um, perhaps optimism about mm. being able to do things and to, to have more control and to be trusted, which I think trust is very important. Mm. And so I think it also might just be an accident of nature that we had such great people like Jamie and Hugh and now great to name April from Field and um, Allegra McFady. And I mean, as you say, we could just... Yeah, it's on and on and And there are the chefs who came to work for us who didn't become superstars. Yeah. You know? There are great chefs opening small restaurants in Melbourne. There are people who are working up north, there are people who are teaching. And I think when somebody comes with that look in there and goes, Ruthie, I need to talk to you, I go, oh no, I know what you're going to say, Um, you're going. And then you, you know, you say, as long as you keep cooking, that's what I hope you'll do. Cooking is, it's very intense too, which is why I also encourage people to not do apprenticeships. Go to university, go to college, paint for a year, travel, whatever you want to do. But if you start working in that, relentless way at age 17 by the time you're 30 you might be kind of tired how do you choose who you're gonna hire we don't take necessarily only people who are you know proven to be great chefs Mm. or cooks we have people who have been doctors or want to change their careers from journalists or lawyers and you know you have to really explain what it is to be a chef you know Mm. at least we can say you will work in a good environment Mm. you will be paid well you will have holidays you will not be allowed to work from eight in the morning until midnight and i think until our profession doesn't do that then a it puts off the best and the brightest you know from doing this and um we're letting everything else down so i think that it's our responsibility to make being a cook 
a, a proper job. And what do I look for? I look for curiosity, you know, and have they read books by Marcella Hazan? Have they traveled? Many of them can't have traveled, so if they don't, that's not a judgment, but have they expressed interest in, you know, olive oil or wine, or have they, are they interested in ingredients? You know, you talk, and then, and then basically, um, you know, they come and everybody, basically, we interview comes and works in the kitchen for a week, and then it can be mutual. They may say, you know, this isn't for me, I need a more kind of hierarchical place, or they mm. may say, we may say, you're not for us because we saw you get irritated at a waiter, and, you know, mm. we, we, we look for the way that you relate to other people and mm. teams, but it's rare. I mean, I'd say that most people we interviewed come and work, and most people come and work stay. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's quite nice. On the road, cafe. Finally, is that a home of sorts for you as well? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely, especially since um, my husband died. Yeah. And I just find that I gravitate to either being in my home or in my other home. You know, I once worked with. Um, group that were working on domestic violence, you know, and you talk to women who experience domestic violence and it's that fear that you have when you put the key in the door. And I always want my home or my place of work to be a place where you put the key in the door and you feel safe. Mm. And I think that I feel very safe either here or, you know, in the River Cafe. Of course, I feel safe with my children's homes, my friends' homes, my... You know, the Tate Gallery, there are many places where you feel that way. But I think for me, the River Cafe is is hugely um, comforting as well as challenging. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just a quick aside, I wanted to tell you briefly about my day job. Uh, So I'm the co-founder of a pair of design-led estate agencies, one called The Modern House and the other called Inigo. Uh, The Modern House is dedicated to the best examples of modernist and contemporary architecture. And Inigo, on the other hand, represents pre-modern housing. So everything from a Victorian workers' cottage in town to a Georgian rectory in the country. Uh, The idea is that via those two platforms, we are able to provide a pre-filtered selection of the most beautiful and well-designed homes for sale in the UK at any one time. Alongside the sales listings, there's all sorts of inspirational content as well. So there's house tours of amazing spaces, area guides, exhibition guides, cultural recommendations and things like that. So if you're looking to buy or sell a place or you want some inspiration for your own home, do take a look at our two websites, themodernhouse.com and inigo.com. Right, back to the podcast. Well, let's move on then to, to the present and, and your house here. I mean, it's one of the great, iconic, modern houses that ironically isn't modern in terms of its original construction. But just tell us, what was it like when you acquired it? And did you specifically want to be in this area? What were you looking for? Right. So just imagine that Richard and I came back from Paris mm. in 1978. Um and we then had to kind of, you know, get back to living in Belsize Park. We had a very beautiful apartment, um, putting our children in school. You know, he had looked for a new site for the office. And so when we were in Paris, we lived in the most beautiful square in the world, Place de Bauge. And that was almost an accident because we were looking for flats. And this is in the early 70s. And um, I saw a ladder in the window. And, I went and asked the concierge. That's a kind of serendipitous story. The man who had it was selling it and 
moved there was very little money. But what it was, it was um, 300 square meters. It's very large. Um, on one floor with six windows facing south. And we just thought, this is the way we wanted to live. Okay. Neither, both of us really sought light in everything mm -hmm. we did. And so we, when we came back to London and started looking for a house or a place to move to, we wanted to find a place where we had space and light. And I always used to say I wanted a room big enough for my little toddler to ride his bicycle in, you know, and that stairs were were something we wanted to avoid. So we looked and we looked. And then I remember coming home with Richard and showing him this this property, which was two houses. I think the first house, the one we're, we're sitting in here, Jenny and David Early, Lord Ogilvy, bought this one. And then over the years, as their family increased, they managed to buy the basement flat. And then up, they met, they got uh, the top floor and then she described it to me as a kind of piece by piece mm -hmm. and then they ended up with two houses okay. and five children and whatever and you know it's a very elegant house so we came to look at it and the thing that really impressed Richard was the fact that it had um, facing south it had four windows it had you know view it had light it had quietness, which is on this side, facing Burton Court, and then the craziness of even more so than the King's Road, of kind of lively. And um, as we had, it's a great two-listed house, but we had the Preservation Society, whatever it was, come and look, and there was nothing left to preserve. There was, okay. there was no molding, there was no height, there was nothing really that told you about what it was like to live in, you know, late Georgian, early Victorian times, I suppose. So, it gave the potential to really keep the exterior, but make a space that would be conducive to the kind of life we wanted. And um, which is to be open, noisy, children's space, probably lack of privacy, whatever that we had. And so we, um, we bought it, then the work began. And so we changed it, uh, changed it all, which we decided to, the, the, the garden was north facing and it was in the basement and there was no light. Mm -hmm. And so we made that the entrance. So you came through this very narrow, almost what was a service door in the back. And then it explodes into this space, which was the, a glass roof covering what was the garden. We had no trouble with planning, planning with a um, sense of humor, because he said, as long as you don't put pipes on the outside, you can do it in one. <laughs> and that was after Pompadour and while Lloyd's was being built. Yeah. You know, it may have helped while Richard was building Lloyd's. It may have helped that, I, I don't know, but they gave us permission. It took, I think, two and a half years to do. Um, somebody once asked my little son, Rue, how's your house going, you know, your new house, and he went slow. You know, we changed it, we did it. We, you know, took out, Richard took out all this, this, this ceiling, and uh, we did it together. And, People always say, how is it working, you know, on a house? And I think working on a house is, is very optimistic because you're imagining yourself in the future. You're thinking where you'll be sleeping, where your kids will be eating. So it's fun. So was it an obvious move to you and Richard to take the floor out and make that double height living Yeah, space? I, was, I was worried about it. I remember in the early days, yeah. I was quite worried about a high volume, you know, and the, mm. the proportions are actually quite beautiful. When I, whenever I see Richard, not very rarely when I, Richard and I would have an argument, I'd say, 
one day I'm going to just put that ceiling back. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to come up from work and that ceiling will be there. No, but it is beautiful. I love the high ceiling. And and it gave us the mezzanine, which, you know, we wanted to have. And I think, you know, he he was so influenced by the space and the time. He's influenced. He, he really loved the Chirot House. I don't know if you know it in Paris. I do. The I've never been in the middle of the bay, yeah. yeah. And the idea of a long, you know, a lot of wall, glass wall. And and, and Richard always referred to it as a piazza, which I love. Yeah, he did. Yeah, what, what did he, he did. mean by that? What he meant was that when you walk in, there's a kitchen. There's a, you, you walk into a space and you, you can't, you don't go down a hallway and sort of go through a door. It explodes. You see who's there. You see who's you know, eating somebody's, as I say, maybe peeling a carrot or somebody's doing their homework. There's a kind of gathering. And Richard himself really liked to work with noise around him. I can't, you know. But he was never happier than sitting up at his desk and having everything going on around him. Um, so he worked on the mezzanine? Yeah, he did. Okay. And, um, and then I think it's also a beautiful place to be by yourself. You know, mm. sometimes I wake up in the morning early or I'd wake up and Richard would be down there. And there was a kind of, you never felt, uh, you know, mm. and rather like a piazza when you see it becoming a bit more alive mm. in the, in the ta- Italian towns, which he was so kind of involved with, you know, mm. uh, Pienza, the square in Pienza, the square in, in uh, Siena, the square in uh, Montepulciano, the, the, the idea that people, and, and um, Pompidou, mm. you know, the idea that you would actually could live in Paris go to the square, not go in a building, and yet see people dancing or music or other people just having a sandwich is, is what places should be. I came here very briefly, actually, because we made a film about the house a few years ago. Yes, I remember. Yeah. It was quite a sight, actually, you and Richard coming down that staircase. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very memorable thing. And, and there's real drama in that, isn't there? Yes. Was that the idea? I think the idea was that, yes, first of all, again, like everything that you understand how it works. You yeah. Know, you see the, the the structure of the way that stair is put together. Richard always said there were more drawings done for that staircase than for the whole of Lloyd's. Mm. You know, it was hugely uh, complicated. Peter Rice, who was the engineer, Laurie Abbott, who really designed it with Richard, um, worked and worked and worked on that staircase. And... Um, and the idea that it's also that it moves, doesn't it? When you yeah. walk on it, it moves. There's a kind of the way it holds your feet and you sort of feel that. Um, I think these stairs are quite welcoming you, to you because you come into the entrance and you can, again, you can see things. You can see down, you can see up, you see that beautiful gust in when you walk in and, and the anticipation. And I walk up those stairs every single night and I still, probably 40 years later, slightly gasp that it's our house you know it's, it's, it surprises me I love it well you, you mentioned Philip Guston there you've also got the Andy Warhols yes, as well how yes. do they contribute to the whole thing could, could you well, imagine it without those yeah maybe I can imagine any, anything without anything I think that Richard and I were given one by my father when we got married which was amazing he managed to get one off the set and then when we had a bit of money later on we managed to get two more so we had three and then Amazingly, there was a whole set that came up, and this is probably seventies, you know. Um, and he gave us this. He let us buy the set without those three. Yeah. And so we have the ten. We've had them 
on the, our walls in one form or another since we, probably 1973. How would you summarize the importance of your home and your life? Because you've been here for so long. Uh, it's very important to me. I see, you know, if I had to sell it, it's life, you know, you, you do what you need to do, you know. Um, so we don't, don't worry about that. But I, I, you know, I just can't imagine living anywhere else now. And I love the fact, the fact that it is as easy to be in this house with one person as it is with six or 10 or 12. So we have, I've had many, many times recently where every bed is full. So I like the idea that a house is lived in. And it reminds me of Richard. You know, I think about Richard and I in different places in the house and what we did and what he did. All very happy memories, you know. Mm. And uh, and also, you know, I was in this house when I was told a grandchild was coming. I was in this house when, you know, a close friend died. We've had weddings. We've had, you know, it's, uh, it's important. Mm. How does it feel without Richard here? Because, I mean, it's... Um... That's, a, that's obviously a, a big change for mm-hmm. you. Um, does it work as well for you on your own as it did? Yeah, I, I mean, two? I feel the house is a great comfort to me because it so much reminds me of when Richard was here and um, when, when he, he died in this house, he died in my arms in his bed. And so it's very important. And I think that change is important too. You know, we can all think this was what it was, this is how it is now and maybe something else soon. I have no idea what change does. And um, and I think it's it's a lived and loved house full of happy memories. And looking forward to the future, if you could sort of draw yourself or imagine yourself a different place that wasn't here, oh, okay. would you, what, what, what ingredients might be in there? What would be the no, important well, things? As I said, light. Light. Um, neighbourhood. I like being able to, I wouldn't want to be in a penthouse on the top floor of an apartment building. Um, I like being kind of near the street. Okay. Um, I like being able to walk out of my front door and be, uh, buy a liter of milk or, you know, more and more frequently in the King's Road, it's a pair of tights or a jacket or a dress or a, a blanket. There's just so many clothes shops, but I love being able to have a coffee or meet a friend down the road or... Yeah, I love urban life. I really love urban life. So you wouldn't live in the countryside? No. Definitely no. I'm I'm intrigued as well by your own um, aesthetic because Richard's aesthetic was so identifiable, in particular the colours. Yeah. How would you summarise your own aesthetic? Left to your own devices, what would something, what would a space look like? I think Richard and I really agreed. Yeah. We we kind of love, I love colour, you know, maybe not as traffic lighty as Richard. I used to say he dressed like a traffic light, you know, the yep. yellows and the reds and the greens. Clothes-wise, I like simple, you know, I'm wearing a jean skirt and a sweater, which I basically wear every day. But neither of us really like clutter. I, I like having my granddaughter's drawing next to my bed, and I like having another child's have a teapot that Abe made when he was, you know, 14, and I've had that. So I like that, but I think um, we don't have a lot of stuff. Mm. No. So what would be um, the most important possession to you? Oh, I have quite a few. I have a box of pencils, coloured pencils, that I'll show you that Norman Foster did for Richard's 17th birthday, oh, wow. in which he wrote on each pencil um, something that they had done together or that Richard had done. Mm. It's really, I would, I'd reach for that in a burning fire. I have a photograph of myself on a demonstration and you know, Vietnam War that I'd quite like to take with me. And then 
you know, I have people that have just been so kind in giving me their work. And Matthew Donaldson gave me a photograph, and Jean Nouvelle did a beautiful poem about Richard when he died, and Renzo gave me a beautiful set of lights that I keep next to my bed. So I think it's it's really my, and all my children. I do have almost photo, I have a photograph of every one of them, and their shelves just photographs of our family and children. So I think those kind of possessions are yeah. important. When you look back over your life, what do you think gives you the most pride? Oh, oh my children. My children. All of them. You know, my children, my stepchildren, my grandchildren. I think they're amazing. I think they're so resilient and they're so creative and they are um, kind. And I don't. I couldn't take any credit for that at all. They came out, you know, gorgeous, interesting people. And then I think my children are awesome parents. And um, I'm excited about this generation. I think they're amazing. Ruthie, thank you so much. It's it's, it's a very um, it's a very big thing to welcome someone into your home like this. So we really appreciate it. Um, I'm such a fan of the work you do, oh. and it, it was just to, you know to open up Instagram or whatever you see, when you see Modern House, you know that somebody's really thinking about architecture and living and aesthetics. What you're doing is is kind of amazing and pushing forward an aesthetic and a philosophy that we need. And hopefully, you know, Britain is changing and taking modernism seriously. Thank you very much for listening. To see some photographs of these spaces we've discussed in this episode, please head over to the Modern House website via the link in the show notes. Homing In is produced by Feast Collective and The Modern House with music by Father. Please do remember to follow the show and if you're able to leave us a quick review, that would of course be much appreciated. Thank you so much and see you next time.